Romans chapter 6. Let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 6. This, this evening we'll consider verses 1 through 4, and I know we considered 1 through 3 already, but we're going to wind back through that material and pick up another verse, verse 4. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Having shown clearly that the grace of God abounded much more, wherever sin abounded, Paul poses the question, which to many would be purely hypothetical, but to others may be very real. If grace is made to abound more, as more sin is committed, then why not sin more, so that more grace will be forthcoming? Of course, that's Romans chapter 6, verse 1. Carried to its extreme, this kind of thinking has produced sects that encourage sinning as a prerequisite to salvation. I know you've never run in these circles, but there are circles where people actually do this. Perhaps the most notorious proponent of this theological aberration was Rasputin, the confidant of Empress Alexandra of Russia. He defended, Rasputin did, defended his own questionable lifestyle and scandalous behavior. And by that I mean he was, he was supposed to be this holy monk who had a wife and a mistress and quite a few other personal shortcomings. But he defended this type of lifestyle that he had by teaching that it brought more grace and was therefore a good thing. Well, it's people like Rasputin that Paul is speaking to in Romans chapter 6. Paul has a very strong way of saying, no, that's not what I'm talking about when he gets a little further into verse 2. Now remember, in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, Paul has outlined two headships, and we're all under one of these two. One or the other, they're mutually exclusive. You cannot be under both headships. We're all born under the first one. And Paul outlines it this way, one man sinned, or disobeyed, I'm just going to put sin, and death entered. One man obeyed, and life came into the picture. That is a 30-second synopsis of Romans chapter 5. Verses 12 through 21. Now, if we understand that, then Romans chapter 6 will come right into line. Actually, chapter 6, 7, and 8 will fall right into place. If we don't get that, then we're not going to get chapter 6. That's why no, no study in Romans should ever start in chapter 6. It's got to start in chapter 1 and move forward. In chapter 6 through 8, we're introduced to the topic that theologians call experiential sanctification, or perhaps progressive sanctification. I know those are $100 theological words for some, but let me unpack them as we go forth. Sanctification means, in its most basic sense, to be set apart. Just to be set apart. Now, we've been studying for pretty much the past year the concept of positional sanctification. Positionally, we have been set apart in Christ. Um, at the moment of faith, we were declared righteous by God. We have been permanently saved from the penalty of sin. Now, what's another word that we've used for that theologically? Justification, right. So when we talk about positional sanctification, we're also talking about the concept of justification. Perhaps not exact synonyms, but close enough for the discussion that we're having tonight. 
In Romans chapter 6 through 8, Paul will outline how the believer can be saved from the power of sin in our lives. We have already been saved, and I assume you're all believers in Jesus Christ, at least if not when the class starts, perhaps by the time that we're finished. But in, we have already been saved by grace through faith from the penalty of sin. When you trust Jesus Christ to forgive your sins and to receive eternal life, you will never again be under the penalty of sin, which is eternal condemnation and death. The first one that that disobeyed was, of course, Adam. When we're born, we're all born associated with Adam. We are all born physically alive, but unfortunately, spiritually dead. Unless you say that that's unfair understand that we would have done the same thing if we were in Adam's shoes. We studied in Romans chapter 5, he is our representative head. But had you been the representative head, we would all be talking about one person and then fill in your name, sinned, and the rest of us are identified with you. So we're all in the same boat. And we've proven that by the fact that we've sinned many times. Even as believers, we've sinned many times. So we're all, we all start off in Adam. But we don't have to stay there, because remember, Adam is associated with death, physical death and spiritual death as well. In in fact, Paul will say that the entirety of creation groans under the curse, even to this day. The fall of Adam that we studied in Genesis chapter 3 had incredible ramifications. But you don't have to stay there. And by grace through faith, the way Paul puts it is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. The way John put it in John 3.16, perhaps the verse, the first one that we memorized as children, but it's far from being a children's verse, or simply restricted to children. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should never perish but have everlasting life. Now sometimes we want to add works to that because we don't feel like that's quite enough. I didn't do quite enough. Well, no, you didn't. In fact, you didn't do anything. God did it all through Jesus Christ. So that's why Paul will say, for, for it's, it's by grace through faith that you've been saved, not of works, lest any man should boast. Paul says, we have, it's not by works of righteousness that we have done that he saved, but, but by his mercy. So by grace through faith, we can be transferred from the realm of death into the realm of life, because the one man who obeyed was Jesus Christ. That's Paul's argument in Romans chapter 5, Verses 12 through 21. Now we move into an entirely different section. A major change has occurred in the book. Our major section change occurs when we get to chapter 6. And this section will, t- will tell us how we can be saved now from the power of sin in our lives. Because I think we'd all agree, even though we have received eternal life, sin's still an issue. It, it, still has this, it still has this empowerment over us, and we don't want it to have it. We know that we shouldn't have it. And we know that if we've left this life and we've started, we have now been regenerated into this life, we ought not to be going back to that life for the way that we live. So it's a problem. And Paul will speak about that now in 6, 7, and 8. How we can be freed from the power of sin. So up until now, Paul has spoken how we're saved from the penalty of sin, eternally saved. You, if you trust Jesus Christ, if you do it tonight, if you do it while I'm talking, you don't even have to say it out loud. It would be better if you didn't at this point. Just in, the, in the, the, the thoughts of your soul, say, Father, I know that I cannot save myself. I know I need a Savior. I trust Jesus Christ to forgive my sins and to give me eternal life. Then you've left this first realm 
The second you do that, you've left this first realm and now you've come into the second. You'll never have to worry about the penalty of sin again. Now, if you don't do that, you better worry a lot about it, frankly, because you're in big trouble. But it's as simple as that. Salvation, pure and simple. But now, the se- uh, chapter 6 through 8 can be divided up into these three parts. Chapter 6 is about the believer in, in sin. Paul will say, I can say no to sin. Before, you really couldn't. You could try. But now you have the ability through the indwelling Holy Spirit to say no to sin. Actually, I just jumped ahead a little bit. We don't know that yet in chapter 6. Chapter 6 just teaches us that we can say no to sin. Chapter 7 is about the believer and the law. Though I can say no to sin, experientially, I don't seem to do it as much as I ought to. I have this fight that's going on within me. The things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, I end up doing. I don't want to sin, but I end up sinning. If you feel that way, don't feel bad. Paul felt that way too. And then we get to chapter 8, the believer in the Holy Spirit. I can say no to sin because of the indwelling Holy Spirit's ministry in my life. So that's a simple outline of chapter 6, 7, and 8. The believer in sin in chapter 6, the believer in the law in chapter 7, and the believer in the Holy Spirit in chapter 8. And most theologians would agree that Romans chapter 8 is at least one of the chapters in the Bible that's got to be close to the top of the list with regard to what we learn about the Holy Spirit's ministry and His role in our life. Another one is Galatians chapter 5, I believe. But Romans 8 is right up near the top. Remember that justification is an act of God whereby He declares the sinner righteous on the basis of God's grace through faith alone in Christ alone. That's justification. Sanctification, and now most of the time from here on out, unless I tell you differently, I'm going to be using the word sanctification in terms of experiential sanctification. Experiential sanctification is the work of God, the Holy Spirit, whereby he progressively transforms the believer into the image of Christ on the basis of God's grace through faith. So we're justified on the basis of God's grace through faith, but it's instantaneous. The minute we trust Jesus Christ, we've been transformed, transferred rather, transferred from the realm of death into the realm of life. Instantaneous. As quick as you can think it, it happens. But now in terms of being transformed into the image of Christ, once you are saved, that takes time. To, to go from here to here takes one decision. Big decision, but it's one decision. To become Christ-like or to become mature in our Christian faith takes thousands upon thousands of decisions. And that's what we'll be speaking about in Romans chapter 6 through 8. Most theologians, not all, but the vast majority of theologians, recognize a distinction in the concepts of justification and sanctification. But there is a discussion about the relationship between the two. We we covered that briefly last time, but the last time was two weeks ago, so let me just review quickly. Does sanctification automatically follow justification? Will I automatically become a mature believer if I trust Jesus Christ? Is that a sure thing? I don't think so. I don't think so at all. In my view, while progressive sanctification, this maturing process, is normal, and it's expected for the believer, it is far from automatic. I hope you understand what I'm saying there. It is what the norm should be, but it's far from automatic. All of us know believers, those who profess, profess faith in Jesus Christ, and we can go by nothing other than their testimony. 
Sure, some people are going to lie to you. God knows whether they're lying or not. But if they have truly trusted Jesus Christ, I know people that, that I'm convinced have trusted Jesus Christ that are not even close to being mature in Jesus Christ. In fact, they seem to be going the other way, don't they, sometimes? We just hope that we're not that person that everybody else is thinking of right now. Yeah, I know. <laughs> See, we're thinking of somebody else, and they're thinking of us. <laughs> so don't do that. But that does happen. And again, the maturing process requires literally thousands upon thousands of decisions over the course of one's lifetime to faithfully obey the commands of God under the ministry of the Holy Spirit in this march toward maturity. There can be, and there are, genuine believers who fail to exercise post-salvation faith, at least not consistently enough, so that their lives on the outside look very much like they had never trusted Jesus Christ at all. That is a possibility. And maybe you've been there. If you've been there, maybe that's where you are. Then start making the decisions tonight to get moving on the path toward Christian maturity. Life is short. One of the reasons I appreciate so many reasons, but I appreciate the, the depth of the prayer requests that we have sometimes. Life's short. I mean, there, there's cancers and there's accidents and there's getting beaten with baseball bats and there's brain tumors and brain clots. You just don't know. Two of the theologians that we prayed for tonight are in their 50s, I assume, guys. They're, they're young people. So we don't know how much time we have. We need to get with it. Now, when Paul starts... Chapter 6, he begins with a question, a bit of a rhetorical question. What shall we say then? This takes us back to the question or the, the concept that he brought up at the end of chapter 5, the idea that you can't out the grace of God. Where sin increases, grace increases that plus one. And it doesn't matter how much sin you commit, there's still that much more grace. You cannot out the grace of God. So Paul really is basically going to say, well, should we try? If grace is a good thing, it is. Wouldn't everybody say grace is a good thing? You better. It's a good thing. So then maybe I'm doing God a favor by sinning more so the good thing comes my way, comes his way. Maybe I'll get blessed by sinning. Now, we think that's absolutely absurd. It is. It is absurd. But I gave you an example of one in, in history, a well-known person, at least in, in the history of other parts of the world, maybe not so much well-known to us, that that was his philosophy. That's exactly what he thought. And others have too. And if they haven't put it down in writing or haven't given a sermon about it, at least they acted like they thought that way. And Paul says, so he said, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin? Should we remain in sin? Or perhaps we could say, should we be living or continuing to live as if I was under the headship of Adam? Now that I've come in, I'm under the headship of Christ. Should I act like I'm under the headship of Adam so that grace might increase? When we got to verse 2, Paul says, Meganoito, or translated in some, I think King James says, God forbid, meaning it's a very, very strong negative. New American Standard says, may it never be. You can fill in your own blank. The strongest negative you can think of, the strongest way to say no you can think of is what you can insert there. Absolutely not. Or my favorite, are you out of your mind to come up with that kind of concept? Whatever you want to insert in there, it's a very strong negative because Paul says, how, how should we who have died to sin, meaning we're not under that headship anymore, 
we're under the headship of Jesus Christ. How can we go back and live under the old headship? Now, we do. Positionally, we're always under this one now, once we trust Jesus Christ. But we go back and we want to live under the other one. That's why we're so conflicted when we sin. I think that was part of Jay Bujashevsky's idea when he wrote that. He wrote his very, very fine text, Revenge of the Conscience. The conscience will not let you go, believer or unbeliever. And that's God's grace. He's never going to let us feel comfortable with that. So, what shall we say then? Should we remain in sin, or, per, or perhaps better understood, should we continue to live as if I was under the headship of Adam, that grace might increase? Does this mean that we're doing a good thing, bringing about more grace by sinning more? No. Paul emphatically denies that the Christian should sin in order to secure more grace and explains himself with a rhetorical question, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? And that's an unanswerable question for the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's, it's kind of like the cold water in the face. It's a wake-up call. It's a loud alarm at 5.30 in the morning. It's, oh, wow, no, I can't do that. makes no sense whatsoever for me to live where I don't belong anymore. That the Christian has died to sin is a major theological issue for Paul in Romans chapter 6. What Paul is saying is all he is saying, if I could simplify in my apologies to the Apostle and the Holy Spirit, if I'm oversimplifying, I don't believe so, he's going back to Romans chapter 5 verses 12 through 21 talking about two headships. And he's saying, you've died to that one. You no longer are associated with that one. What are you thinking when you want to go back and live in it? Now, at this point, we could count, all count ourselves guilty. In fact, John tells us in his first epistle that if we pretend that we're not guilty of doing that, at least occasionally we're lying. And there are believers who attempt to lie that way. Don't run into them very often, but one will say, well, listen, I haven't sinned in the last three weeks that I know of. Well, just... Talk to their wife or their children, and we'll see if they have, you know, are you willing to, put, to, to, to take an oath? Or are you going to take the fifth when that comes down, like this whole steroid thing? Are you going to tell the truth? Well, if you're telling the truth, probably you have either that or you're a little bit goofy in the brain and, and you, you've lost your mind. Or the third possibility is you really don't know what sin is. That's a possibility, too. But Paul says, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? And the implied answer to that is you can't. You, should not, you, not, you can't. you shouldn't live in it. We do, but we shouldn't. It's totally abnormal. Let's get down to where we live for just a minute, because we all live here, at least at one time or another. We see something that God has prohibited. You fell in your own blank. I don't want to step on anybody's toes right now, because I want you to get the principle. We understand a command that's a clear prohibition from God. We look at it, and we're like that cow that you see on the side of the road. I don't mean to be disrespectful, but just follow my illustration. There, we're like the cow that we see when we're driving down the highway, who's got plenty of green grass on his or her side of the fence. And inevitably, she's got her stick her head through the fence. You know that barbed wire's got to be hurting her. And try to eat some of the grass from the other side because she knows that grass tastes better. You know it does. And then every now and then you'll see a cow that actually is so heavy they'll break right through that fence. 
and they start wandering off, you know, just looking around, and then gets in the middle of the freeway, and, and like I saw over on Red Bluff Road one day, this car just smashed it, I think killed the driver of the car and the cow. You know, I mean, bad things happen when you exit the boundaries of that fence. Well, as soon as we figure out that God didn't put the fence up to make us unhappy, he put the fence up to protect us, and ultimately to make us happy, the better we'll be. God didn't issue commands to hurt us. He issued commands to help us. Unless you misunderstand this, all of you who are parents probably have some sort of command. I think we all have at least one command in common, and that's don't go running into the street. Or at least don't go running into the street without looking. And in some streets, we used to play on our street, but some streets don't play in the street at all. When you're a kid, there's part of you who wants to go play in that street. Why? Because mom said not to. And there's just, there's just this part of our nature that thinks if she said not to, it must be pretty cool out in the street. It must be really cool out there. So I'm going to try it. Well, just like you as a parent didn't set up that prohibition to make your child's life miserable, you set up the prohibition to ultimately make them happy so that they could live to adulthood. God doesn't set up the prohibitions that he has in the Word of God to make us unhappy either. He set them up for our benefit. The grass isn't greener on the other side. The grass is greener in the pasture that he set us up in. It may look that way because Satan likes to make it look that way sometimes. It can make sin very attractive looking. Satan can package sin in a really neat way. But it's not attractive. It's actually very ugly. So we have died to sin. Whenever the word death, in, in this case, the, the verb died, is used in Scripture, it must be determined what kind of death is being referred to. Death is, in essence, a separation. In Romans, Paul speaks of at least three kinds of death. He speaks of physical death, which is the separation of the body and the soul. He speaks of sexual death in chapter 4, the separation of, a, of an individual and reproductive capabilities, and also spiritual death, the separation of an individual with God, at least from the blessings of God. We probably ought to be more specific about that. But what kind of death is in view here when he says, how shall we who died to sin? Well, what Paul is saying, he also may say we died with respect to sin, but the, the idea of death is still here. What he's telling us is that positionally, we are no, no longer what we were. There's been a positional separation between me and the headship of Adam. There's been a positional separation between you and the headship of Adam. Paul calls it a death. I have died with respect to my identification with Adam and all that it entails. Now, at times I might act like I'm still under the headship of Adam. That's chapter 7. I might sin. But it is now abnormal for me to sin. And this is how I'll define these terms as we use them over the next three chapters. Sin is common for the believer, unfortunately. Far too common. But sin is not normal for the believer. I hope you see the distinction. Sin is common, but it's not who we are anymore. People say, is it, is it normal to feel bad when you sin as a believer? Yeah. Yeah, it is. Unless you have desensitized yourself 
Yeah, you ought to feel bad because it's not who you are. You're acting, you're acting out something that you don't, you're acting out a headship you don't belong to anymore. That's why he says you've died to it. It is now abnormal for me to sin. Paul then goes on to say in verse 3, or do you not know? Could be translated, are you unaware or are you ignorant of the fact? And this is the way that Jesus interacted with people from time to time. It's a, in my view, it's a very Jewish way of personal interaction. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ have been baptized into his death? The word baptism at its core means identification. Now, through the commentary tradition, there's a strong strand that takes this as water baptism. I don't. I don't see water in this particular section of the Word of God. I see a different kind of identification, and there are several baptisms mentioned in Scripture. Just to name a few, the baptism of Moses mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. There's no water there, at least not for the identification with Moses. The Israelites went through the Red Sea on dry land. They went through dry. The Egyptians were identified with the water in a bad way, and they all drowned. But the, the baptism of Moses was dry. John's baptism was unique. It was unique for their time. It is not valid for today. John was calling the nation Israel to repentance to prepare the way for the Messiah. They didn't do it on the whole, but that's what his ministry was about. And then John's baptism of Jesus, of course, was unique. Christian baptism, Matthew chapter 28, I believe, is a, is a valid baptism, is a valid ordinance for the church today. And that is a, a, an identification. It's a ritual identification whereby... One is identified by means of immersion in water with Jesus Christ in the Christian community. And then there is spirit baptism that's mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. Now here Paul is speaking of an identification, but technically speaking, I'm not sure that this is technically speaking the spirit's baptism. This is a different kind of identification. We were identified with Adam and his sin. In fact, the scriptures don't put it this way, but we could say at one time we were baptized into Adam, if, you, if this will help you to understand it. Now we've been baptized into Jesus Christ and, and his death and his burial and his resurrection as well. But, but we were identified at one time with Adam. Now we're identified with Christ. If it helps you to keep from being too confused, then substitute the word identification for the word baptism there. And you'll be faithful. I believe you'll be faithful to what Paul is is expressing through the Holy Spirit by means of the Greek language. We have been identified with Christ and with his death, Paul says. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death? Now, by the way, that is a, that is a statement of fact. It's not a command. You're not commanded to have that type of baptism. Once we exercise faith, faith alone in Christ alone, you have been baptized. Period. It's not a command. It's, it's a statement of fact. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ have been baptized into his death? We've been so identified with Jesus Christ that we are identified with him in his death. Now, this does not mean that you were literally crucified with Jesus Christ, but that we're so identified with him that we're intimately associated with him in his death. It's not a command to be baptized. It is a statement of fact. So the first, summary of the first three verses, by grace through faith we have been so identified with Jesus Christ that we are also identified with what he did. 
We did not die on the cross. However, we are intimately identified with him and his work so that we have been, now that we have been uh, placed our faith in him. We are identified with him now that we've placed our faith in him. Now, in the few moments we have left, let's consider verse 4. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we, too, might walk in newness of life. Didn't you know there was a catch coming? Paul's not just going to leave this with theology. He's going to insist on a certain behavioral pattern based upon what he's told us. Jesus' burial was not part of his saving work. It simply proved that he had died. More on that Easter Sunday morning. Similarly, his resurrection was not technically part of his saving work. It proved that death had no hold on him. It proved that he was who he said he was. It validated the claims that he made when he had his public ministry here on earth. Walking in newness of life, then demonstrates that we are who we say we are. Paul's drawing a comparison here. In our identification with Christ, we died, we were buried, and we were resurrected. Again, we're no longer under the headship of Adam. We died to that. Death, I hope you will agree, has a finality to it. That life is over. Through our identification with Christ, then Paul says, we're buried with Him. This speaks of the validation of the fact that we died. You don't put living people into coffins. At least hope not very often we do that. Edgar Allan Poe was always scared that was going to happen to him, so he had a coffin built. You remember this from literature class way back? He had a coffin built that had food in it and water in it and a bell that he could ring in case he was just swooning and having to wake up after a while. And he would ring the bell. Of course, no bell ever rang. When he died, he was dead. There was a finality to it. And then they buried him, which demonstrated that there was a finality to the transaction. You see where Paul's going with this now? Not only did you die, but we were buried with him. He takes the events of that crucifixion week, the crucifixion, the burial, and then the resurrection, and then attaches meaning to those three events for us. So our death has been validated, the death to sin. And finally, Jesus Christ, just as Jesus Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, so also we've been raised from the dead. Now this is not talking about ultimately our receiving of a resurrection body. What Paul is saying here is that we simply didn't just die to an old headship. We weren't simply buried to prove that we were dead to an old headship. But we've, given, we've been given now new life under a new headship. We weren't given. We weren't given new life to live under an old system. That's not why he did it. He gave us new life so that we would live like we have 
a different kind of life, a new life. Unfortunately, many of us do use our new life to live under the headship of Adam. That's very common. But again, it's not normal. It's not the intended result of our justification. It's not what God had in mind. God expects a certain behavior from his children. He's sovereign, means he's the boss. And so he has a right to expect a certain behavior from his children. And he has a right to expect a behavior that we might call Christ-like. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says to, to imitate God. If you wonder what to do in a particular circumstance, I don't mind at all. I can't think it's kind of neat that those bracelets that, that people were wearing for a while, what would Jesus do? That's not a bad thing to ask yourself. Now, sometimes you don't have certain of the prerogatives that he did because he also could judge, and we can't do that. But how would he act morally in a certain situation? Great model. Can't think of a better one, can you? If you can, then we better talk. <laughs> I'm going to talk you out of it. But God expects behavior from us. He is sovereign, and he has the right to expect it. So what Paul says in the verse 4 verses, as those who are saved by grace through faith, as those who are no longer identified with Adam, but now identified with the new headship of Jesus Christ, we say we live that way. More in a couple of weeks. Heavenly Father, we're so appreciative of our new life in Jesus Christ. I thank you that we've been so identified with Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, that we are a new creature in Christ, and we have the ability now, through your indwelling Holy Spirit, to walk in a new way, to live in a new way. Not perfectly, we understand that, but Father, help us through your Holy Spirit to live consistently that way. And Father, if there are any that have gathered here together tonight that are still under the headship of Adam, that have refused to exercise simple faith, I do pray for their salvation tonight, that this might be the last night of their life, that they live under the old headship that they may truly consider the Apostle Paul's words and, and the utter simplicity of it. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. And Father, we'll leave all this in your hands. In Jesus' name, amen.